There are many tales of human suffering, but none so iconic as the book of Job. Job is part of the Bible's wisdom literature, a kind of philosophical and theological exploration of the so-called problem of evil. That is, how can evil exist? How can suffering exist in a universe governed by an all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-loving God? Or in other words, why do bad things happen to good people? The book of Job is a hypothetical scenario. Imagine a righteous man who loses everything, forced to reckon with this question. And imagine what God would say in response. And that's where we find ourselves in this text. After nearly 40 chapters of asking hard questions, the voice of God calls out of a whirlwind to offer answers. But they aren't the answers that Job is looking for. It doesn't even sound like God and Job are having the same conversation. Instead of addressing the question of suffering, God speaks at length about the nature of creation and the rules that govern it. But if we listen closely, we might find the answer we seek. A reading from the book of Job. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Who is this that darkness counsel by words without knowledge? Give up your loins like a man, and I will question you, and you shall declare to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the heavenly beings shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment, and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed bounds for it, and set bars and doors, and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall our proud waves be stopped. Can you bind the chains of Pleiades or loosen the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maseroth in their season? Or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Please pray with me. Everlasting God, creator of all things, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you. And may they be in keeping always with the teachings of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. I never did care much for rules. I know, I get it, I understand why rules and laws and policies are important. You've gotta have them. Right? In sport, they ensure that there's a game to be played. And in life, rules and laws help us to keep our baser instincts in check. But I'm a congregationalist, gosh darn it, and I don't like being told what to do. Which is ironic, I guess, since the first congregationalists 
had a whole lot of arbitrary rules. I'm from New England, as you know, and uh, there our pilgrim forebears established all kinds of bizarre laws that still remain on the books today. For instance, did you know that women back then weren't allowed to kiss their own children on Sundays? No one was allowed to dance or play cards or bake mince pies. And perhaps worst of all, every male had to have his hair cut round in the shape of a cup or a bowl. If there was no bowl to be found, they would use the hard shell of a pumpkin and trim around that. Now, this is where I grew up. But no one enforces those laws anymore, you protest. Well, if that's the case, then tell me this. Why did my parents give me a bowl cut for all of those years until I finally came of age and fled New England with nothing but a change of clothes and a can of hairspray in my rucksack? (laughs) My kids don't like rules either. Our three-year-old, Levi, named for Leviathan, the great sea demon of the Bible who represents raw chaos, has no regard for authority whatsoever. And while his older brother Ethan is a hardcore rule follower at school, he is not such a good rule follower at home. He will argue and cajole and try to talk his way out of absolutely everything, much as I did when I was his age. Last week, we had our family photo taken for the church directory. I told him to wear something nice, you know, and he insisted on wearing this t-shirt that he'd made in vacation Bible school last summer, just a plain white t-shirt with the enigmatic phrase, church chicken, scrawled on it with markers. Now, I have no idea what that means, but I'm pretty sure there's something vaguely disrespectful about it. And I, I tried to explain to him that I'm the minister, you know, and I can't have my son wearing some shirt that says church chicken in the photo directory. After some debate, he finally went back to his room and changed into something more sensible. But when he came back, he was wearing his red plaid underwear outside of his pants. <laughs> I have no idea where this kid gets his fashion sense from. Anyway, we finally get him into into something respectable, and then he starts telling me that he wants to bring props to the photo session. No props, I tell him. We're not, we're not doing this. We're not bringing a bunch of props. It's not allowed, okay? But what about this Jesus figure, he asks me, holding up an action figure of the man of Nazareth that he took from my office? I mean, it's a church photo, he says. And isn't church supposed to be all about Jesus? Fine, I relent. You can bring the Jesus figure. Oh, I'm not bringing this, he says, tossing it aside. But now that we've established that props are allowed, I think I'll just bring this church chicken t-shirt. And when I put my foot down and, and tell him no, it's not happening, He replies with the age-old complaint, but it's not fair. It's not fair. Job 
who has suffered more than my kids could possibly imagine, appeals to this same principle of fairness. If you're a good person, he argues, if you follow all the rules, then you shouldn't have to suffer. You shouldn't be punished. But Job suffers terribly. His livelihood and his family are both lost in a freak accident that destroys everything. His health quickly deteriorates and his body is covered in weeping sores. Everything Job had is gone, except for a few unsympathetic friends, all of whom insist that Job must have done something really terrible to deserve the hand that he's been dealt. And it's true, that's how society works. That's how human society works. You break the law, you get punished. You suffer the consequences. That's the worldview that Job and his friends are working with in this book. But it can't hope to answer Job's timeless question. Why do bad things happen to good people? I've often found myself confronted with this riddle at the bedside of the dying, especially if that person is especially young or died in a tragic accident. I found myself there again just yesterday, puzzling again over that great mystery. But in that space and in that moment, I find prayer and presence to be preferable to philosophical musings and theological rambling. It's not really the time to try to answer that question. But now that I'm in the pulpit, I feel like we have a little more space to explore this question. So stay with me, and we'll try to figure this thing out together. In the book of Job, God talks about bringing a kind of order to a chaotic universe. God marks the boundaries of the sea and the sky. God orders the movements of the sun and the moon. God subdues Leviathan. And that's no small feat. But this is all to say that God has constructed our reality a system of the world, if you will. And it seems to me that there are three layers in this system, three layers of rules that govern everything, that dictate our shared reality. There's the legal, which is really a human construct of civilization. The mechanical, or the principles of the physical world, that we live in, and the moral, which is what Jesus tried to talk to us about. And each one of these layers of reality brings us closer to addressing this perennial question, why is suffering built into the system? Why do bad things happen to good people? So first, there's the legal system that we all live with. We ask this question about human suffering in the first place, I think, because we're so accustomed to living within a legalistic society where crime and punishment go hand in hand. 
Human civilization is a vast machine, a construct of rules and punishments and rewards. And within this system, it makes absolutely no sense why good people would be punished. But God didn't build this system. We did. It's, it's ours. And if we really want to understand human suffering, we have to look far beyond our own inventions. Eli Wiesel, the author and Holocaust survivor, wrote a play once called The Trial of God, which is just what it sounds like. It's about these folks who put God on trial for crimes against humanity, a charge for which God is found guilty. In 2008, a Nebraska senator filed a lawsuit against God, asking for, quote, a permanent injunction ordering defendant to cease certain harmful activities and the making of terroristic threats. Now, there's something cathartic about these injunctions, I guess, but God isn't subject to these human laws. Job can't seem to get his head around that. He's stuck in these legal metaphors. For Job, God is a a judge, a prosecutor, someone who builds a case against Job and indicts him in a courtroom. And Job is the defendant, uh, a man accused of a crime he didn't commit, representing himself, unable to prove his innocence. This is the language that Job uses in this book. He tries to apply the laws of human society to God. He appeals to this legalistic notion of fairness. Why did you do this to me? Why have you made me suffer when I've done nothing to deserve it? Tell me, what law did I break that I deserve to be punished so severely? And rather than answering Job's real question, why do bad things happen to good people? God attempts to describe the system of the world in mechanical terms. A system not of legal codes and punishments, but rather a system ordered by things like gravity and entropy and the physics of motion. Mechanics. Natural law, if you will. God doesn't appeal to human laws, but to creation itself. The system that God created. Now this brings us to the mechanical layer of reality. In 1687, Sir Isaac Newton published his magnum opus, Mathematical Principles of Natural Philosophy. And in the third book of that work, titled The System of the World, Newton applies the rules of motion and physical mechanics to the solar system. And I think in much the same way we can apply these same principles to the question of human suffering. Now as a pastor, I have borne witness to intolerable pain. I can't really talk about it, but know that I don't take it lightly. And in truth, most of the suffering I've seen comes down to the reality of living in this physical, material world which has its own set of rules that can't be bent or broken. Energy can be neither created nor destroyed. A body in motion stays in motion. 
2 plus 2 equals 4. What goes up must come down. And whatever lives must one day die. Earlier this month, as I'm sure you all know, there was a limousine crash in upstate New York that killed 20 people. The passengers, the driver, and two unfortunate pedestrians. Tom and Linda King were dealt an especially hard blow. All four of their daughters were in that limousine, along with their three sons-in-law. And in a moment, they were all gone. It's a tragedy on par with the book of Job. God did not take these people. God did not take these people because God needed more angels in heaven. That's not why they died. They died because the car failed its inspection, and the driver wasn't properly licensed, and something went wrong. In this material universe, people grow old and die. Children are diagnosed with cancer and genetic disorders. And some perish in car accidents, lost to the indifferent physics of velocity and momentum. The question, it seems to me, should not be Why do bad things happen to good people? In a mechanical universe, that much can't be helped. Bad things happen to everyone, eventually, no matter how good or bad you are. The more important question, I think, is why did God create a material universe at all? Why are we here? I mean, if that's all it were, a mechanistic universe, a series of scientific laws and principles without purpose or meaning, well, that'd be pretty depressing. And frankly, we may as well all just get up and go home right now, if that's all it were. The legal system raises the question of suffering. The mechanical system tells us how we suffer and maybe a little bit of why, but it's a deeply unsatisfying why. And that brings us, friends, to the moral system. The reason we're all here. Not just here in church this morning, but here. I believe, personally, that we are here in this world, in this life, to learn how to love each other. And love is only possible when we choose it of our own free will in the midst of other alternatives and obstacles, in the midst of pain. This world is like a crucible, a place that we live in and grow in and love in and die in. It's a place where our souls are tested, not in an individual sense. I don't believe that God is testing us. God is testing you, you know, when someone takes your child. I don't believe that. But I believe that this entire framework we live in is a means for us 
to grow into love. There's an old story, an old rabbinic legend about a man who sought justice. He dedicated his life to it. He was sure that it must exist somewhere, although he'd never seen it himself. So he left his home and traveled the world, wandering from one village to another, exploring the alleyways of ancient cities and the desert wilderness, always in search of justice, always in search of love. And one day, after he had traversed the whole world, and he had still not found justice, when he had still not found a loving word or deed, he found himself standing before a small cottage in the woods. And upon entering this cottage, he found that it was much larger on the inside than it seemed. It was filled with shelves, row upon row upon row, stretching into the distance, all of them adorned with thousands of oil candles. And some of these burned brightly, while others were dim and running out of oil. A man appeared then, an old man with a long white beard, the keeper of these candles. Tell me, the traveler asked him, what are all of these candles? Each of these is a living person's soul, the old man explained. And when the flame burns out, their soul takes leave of this world. The wanderer asked the old man if he might be able to see his own candle. And the keeper obliged, leading him back through the aisles. He eventually pointed to a small candle on one of the lower shelves. And the man suddenly grew terrified because he could see that the flame was sputtering and that the oil had nearly run dry. The old man turned away and left him alone with his thoughts and with his own dying flame. And the traveler noticed then that the candle next to his was tall and that the holder was filled with oil and the flame burned brightly. And a terrible idea took hold of him. Looking around to see if the keeper was nearby, the man picked it up and began to pour the oil into his own. But just as he did, a firm hand gripped his arm. It belonged to the old man who whispered in his ear, Is this the kind of justice you've been seeking? The cottage like our world, is part of a moral universe. It's a, a physical place that we must navigate, a place where there is suffering, where there is death, but where there is also an abundance of light in Christ to guide us. It's a place where nothing lasts forever, a place where each of us is called to choose Love over fear. I never did care much for rules, but every system has them. And one of them is that love has a cost. If everyone lived forever, if everyone lived eternally with no free will, 
and no suffering, love would be an empty gesture if, if it existed at all. I know that's cold comfort for Job, or for the mother who has to bury her child, or for any of us, knowing that everyone we love will one day die. But that's why we love them so deeply that it hurts. It's because we know that one day they'll be gone. One day we'll be gone. One day we'll miss this. We'll miss the time we had. But you know what? We wouldn't trade it for anything. Amen.